by conventional reckoning. It's Friday evening. And we've uh, been together one week. Conventional, I said conventional reckoning because a lot can happen in a week. And what is it, the thought, I've been here a week? Might seem like a long time, might seem like a short time. Yet all those different experiences... uh, happen in one place, this mind, and in one time really, the, the present, every single experience that we have, that we're having. Arises and ceases in this uh, one mind, this mind. Sometimes we think that we're going through life. I'm this body, or maybe I'm in this brain, in this body, walking through life. Sometimes we might think like that. You start talking about studying the mind, and people think you're just studying some kind of chemical reaction that happens up there somewhere. And yet, actually, as we reflect, we, we, we see that the, the life moves through the mind. There is mind. There is awareness. And, and the moments of our day, the experiences of our day visit us. Appear within this, this realm of presence. So Friday a week ago appeared and dissolved into Saturday a week ago, into Sunday, into Monday, into Tuesday, into Wednesday, into Thursday, into Friday. Rising, dissolving, arising, dissolving, arising, dissolving. And when we're totally mesmerized by the sense of distinction, and the world is shattered into, as it says, 84,000 things. The good and the bad and the high and the low and the this and the that. As we start to practice Dhamma, which is Sanditiko, which we chant every morning, when we start practicing being in contact with what is here and now, which is always with us, akaliko, not bound in time, not just when we're on the cushion, not just when we're in the high state, but not bound by time, starting to make contact with when walking, when sitting, when stretching, when resting, when working, when peaceful, when agitated. 
Then it said, as we chant in the morning, this quality of Dhamma, Opanaiko. It leads home. It, it leads inward. It leads more and more to the truth of the matter as we start to contact these moments which have been blurred by assumption or what Tanisura described to us as avidya, not seeing clearly, darkness, ignoring through grasping at the appearance, at an assumption, seeing through a view. When, when we begin to touch the moments of our reality, of our experience with qualities of presence of mind, then this darkness is illuminated. When the room is dark, we trip over things. We don't know what's happening. We get afraid of what might be there. Cold, windy, stormy night in KwaZulu-Natal. You hear something tapping on the window. Has a deranged Zulu come after us? <laughs> Eighteen people a day were killed last year. Am I on the list? Heartbeat goes up to a million beats a minute. And if we notice, notice a branch touching the window, what happens? It's gone. Oh, it's a branch. But when we don't really know the possibilities, the generation of dukkha, suffering, fear, when we see something for what it is, kind of storms hitting the branch, hitting the window, oh, Why, the candle is is a beautiful image of wisdom. It's dark. We don't know what's there. We're tripping over things. We we bring the candle into a, a, a dark room and it's illuminated so that we then can negotiate with what's in the room based on what it really is, what we can see clearly. Where does the darkness go? We haven't gone to another space, same space. But it's been filled with clarity rather than just uh, the darkness of assumption. We've made the effort to share on this retreat some of the skillful means that the, that the Buddha taught us for bringing forth, for facilitating this quality of illuminating the moments of our life with with awareness. We, we do the best we can for our own limited skill, our own limited experience. Feeling humbled by the, the, the great saints and sages over time and the, the awesome accomplishment of the Buddha, wealth of knowledge of the Buddha, treasures of the Buddha, feeling humbled by that kind of responsibility to try to, to, to share through our own experience some of what we feel is precious and might be useful. 
So forgive us if things are confusing or, or wrong, but to, to, to take them in the spirit of the Dhamma, in the spirit of trying things for ourselves, investigating, seeing for ourselves. And what is useful, wonderful. What doesn't seem to be now, then letting that go. Sometimes when one hears all these teachings, he can look and you just get feel confused. It's so complicated. Our teacher, Ajahn Chah, once went through that phase. There's one kind of commentarial work called the um, Visuddhi Maga about the billion practices. Of, of, of restraint, of billion practices, of mindfulness, the billion practices of samadhi, the trillion defilements and how to deal with them. And Ajahn Chah, just, he read this thing and he just said, it's impossible. It's impossible. <laughs> and he went to the great forest master of the time before him, Ajahn Mun. You just see his picture and you kind of straighten up a little bit. <laughs> this guy's fierce. I mean, Ajahn Chah could, could have one of these incredible charming sides. He could be a little round and, and kind of incredible sense of humor and, and really soft. I mean, when he turned his kind of equanimity coolness on, it could be a little scary because there wasn't nobody in town except a lot of... A lot of clarity, but uh, be, but uh, Ajahn Mun's picture—he is thin as a rail, and these eyes <laughs> penetrating through everything. You see one his picture, and like I say, he's fierce. <laughs> and uh, uh, he wasn't a softy. And uh, Ajahn Chah went to see him, and. Uh, in the, in the early days of his practice, and said, Ajahn Man, I've been reading this, this Vasudhi Maga. There's no way. It's too much. How can you do it? And Ajahn Man, obviously he had quite a soft side in there too. Ajahn Mun said to Ajahn Chah, where do you think that Vasudhi Maga came from? He said, that Vasudhi Maga came out of the mind. So he said, Chah? <laughs> he didn't call him Ajahn Chah, he said, Chah. <laughs> Take it back to your mind. Go to the source of where all this stuff comes from. You don't have to, don't worry about all that stuff. Can you stay with your own mind? Can you know your mind? Najin Shah thought, I can do that. That's something I can do. And that, that was beautiful, beautiful, beautiful advice. Ajahn Chah even had another doubt because he was ordained in the sect, the, the Nikaya, I don't know what the word is. The school, the, the school in, in Thai Buddhism, 
that had a kind of bit of a reputation of being a bit sloppy. Some of the town monks studied quite a lot, didn't do a lot of practice. And though Ajahn Chah himself, as we heard from his story that I read the other day, was keen. He was ordained in this, in this uh, lineage that had gotten, over time, a little corrupt. So well supported and so wealthy and a bit cult- culturally oriented to do blessing chants and, and funerals. And, <laughs> and so Ajahn Chah thought, well, maybe I better just, you know, disrobe and reordain in, in, in the real top flight group. <laughs> The new reform sect, which which Ajahn Mun himself had kind of brought about, because he was so keen, he just went to the forest, went back to the basics, and uh, Ajahn Mun told him, "Not necessary. Stay where you are. Be a good monk, right where you are. Know your mind." And that's just what Ajahn Chah did. Never was that well educated, and yet never met anybody could talk like him, could tell stories like him, could charm like him, could terrify like him. He said, didn't have anything against reading books, but so many of the Westerners were so filled with so many ideas of this master, this master, this master, this master. When he was asked what the biggest obstacle that his Western disciples faced, he he said without hesitation, all their views and opinions. They know so much. He said, not that you shouldn't read, but if you're going to read something, the most important book to read Ajahn Chah said, is the book of our heart. Read the book of your heart. Can we know the pages, the moods, the thoughts, the tendencies, the yearnings, the terrors, the shadowy bits that we don't even get close to? And we read the book of the heart. That's what he, right when I got there, he encouraged uh, us to do. I'm very grateful for his way of making the teaching simple without taking away the profundity, making it doable. One of the most famous teachings of the Buddha, which I think points to this simplicity, supposedly was given on the uh, full moon of February, which in ancient India, the new moons and the full moons were time that for centuries the, the, the seekers, religious seekers, gathered for meetings. They would sit meditation through the night and talk Dhamma. And on this particular, in the early days of the Buddha's enlightenment, uh, so the story goes, 
1,250 of his enlightened disciples without invitations. Just all thought, I will go there tonight. And they all went to where the Buddha happened to be staying, that particular forest. I don't remember which one it was. 1,250 disciples, enlightened. That means peaceful, not a lot of restlessness. pure-hearted beings. They sat still. And then the Buddha gave a talk. And the, the talk that he gave is, uh, there are several sections of it, but uh, the, the, there's one bit that I, that I think is uh, important. Sometimes you might imagine that it has to be some really high-blown, incredible thing that you would say to 1,250 enlightened disciples. But the, the beautiful simplicity of those teachings, which has become the Owada Patimoka, which has become the, the, the framework that leads to freedom. Frameworks that we use, reflect upon it, that carry us and guide us to freedom. And one of the parts I'd like to reflect on a little bit tonight is, is uh, Sabbapapasa akaranam kusala supasampata sajitta paliodapanam etang buddha sasanam. Uh, one, two, three, four lines. Sabbapapasa akaranam. The first line is all that is unwholesome, all that is evil, all that is harmful, akkalanang, learning to move away, learning not to set it in motion, not to do that. Sabbapapasakkaranang, kusala suppasampada, the second line. Kusala means the wholesome. Upasampada, to lift that up. Lift that up in our life. Sajitta pariyodapanang, jitta, the heart, sajitta, our heart. Sajitta pariyodapanang, to purify the heart. Purifying the heart of this delusion, of this greed, of this hatred, of this confusion, revealing that which has always been, that which is always is, this luminous, timeless aspect of nature. Sajitta Pariodapanang, Etang Buddhasasanang. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. What beautiful simplicity to refrain from evil or the unwholesome, to uplift the good in the wholesome, to purify the heart, this is the teaching of all the Buddhas. We've been working a lot on, um, on this purification of heart. A lot of the meditative practices are about that. It's important also, though, to consider that the, 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 the path, the Fourth Noble Truth, the path that leads to freedom, was not just about meditation. It was, it was beginning to bring, when Ajahn Man said to Ajahn Chah, know your mind, bring it back down to the mind. 
For what happens within the mind is not just meditation. Our life arises and ceases in the mind. Not just sitting down and meditating. But the way that we receive moments, the way that we see, the way that we, our intentions, our speech, our actions, the way that we live, our livelihood, the way we relate to our fellow beings, to the earth, and our meditations, our efforts, our moments of mindfulness, all of this is, 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 is needs to be included. If we want to really be, be peaceful and we only meditate, number one, if we don't look at the rest of our life, then we might still be continuing to set in motion, because remember this is a lawful universe. Karma means that which we set in motion. We might be setting in motion all kinds of things that keep ricocheting back into our meditation. I wonder why I'm not peaceful. And not only that, we've all of us already set in motion so many things. Already set in motion so many things, not only from this life, and goodness gracious, that's enough. One day we can set a lot in motion. A lot we can set in motion. And then once it's moving, it's terrifying. I once, as a student at Oxford, went to France was with a, a girlfriend. And I was into meditation, but I didn't have a teacher, so I didn't know what I was doing. I would just kind of rev up. And she wasn't into meditation. Or maybe she just wasn't in what I was into, because she knew maybe on a deeper level I wasn't doing it very well. Who knows? But as I was trying to rev up, basically I revved up irritation. <clears throat> and, uh, and we were at, on the gorges of Tarn, some places in southern France. I wasn't getting anywhere in my meditation, so there was a. I opened my eyes and there was this thing in front of me, and so I just let it at, have it. I went and pushed this stump, big huge stump, over a mountain. And then, to my horror, I looked down, and this thing was bounding down a mountain. There was a road down there. There was someone walking on the road. hurtling down. Come back, but uh, pretty pitiful. Come back. (laughs) So an important part of the path is learning to construct a container to recognize what shouldn't be done. And we'll be talking about that more in the next few days. But learning to, when, when something is setting in motion, something that can harm ourselves or another, learning not, not to do that, not to harm ourselves or another, not to take what isn't meant for us, not to abuse and exploit our sensuality or sexuality in a way that harms, not to use speech in an unskillful way, not to use consciousness itself in an unskillful way. Learning to restrain those impulses, that's an important part of the path which we'll be looking at in more detail 
And it looks quite negative, but, but actually it stops putting into motion that which then leads to painful results. The nature of karma is that if we do something with a, a, a hateful or an averse or a greedy or deluded intention, then, then it brings a painful result. Or if there's a wholesome, a non-greedy, a non-averse, a non-deluded action, it brings a pleasing result. So the sabbapapasa karanang, just learning not to do things is incredible. And even in that negativity, just not doing that which harms, there's also a positive energy that's developed, the energy of containment, the energy of patience, there's impossibility by being willing to be with those energies, not to repress them, but be with them. The possibility of being able to get to know so that there's some choice, not just reactivity, to get to know the various fiery forces of being. And this, this principle of karma, I want to reflect a little bit on it. Many of us in our meditation, you know, would just, you know, like to be able to, you know, just go for gold, be peaceful, and yet something obstructs us. We know we should let go and we can't let go, or we're being beset by this or beset by that. What is obstruction but karmic result? It's what has been set in motion, tendencies, ancient tendencies that, that have momentum, that, that, that still bind us. If the only part of the path that we know is just trying to cut through in our meditation, sometimes our, our sort of wisdom just can't make it through. It just snaps. <laughs> An image that the Buddha gave on karma is very important for us to reflect on. In the next uh, few days, we're, we're going to look into this, especially tomorrow. When we look at the... We're going to be offering for those who wish to participate, a, a ceremony, a bowing ceremony, a reflecting on harm ever done to ourselves or others, what's called a, a repentance and reform ceremony. And it's looking at the whole nature of karma. The Buddha taught that if, if the way that we make karma, if we have to receive the exact result of that, then there is no escape. It, we're just doomed to endless suffering. If every time we say a harsh word to someone else, we have to get that exact same thing back, a harsh word. If we, in irritation, kick a donkey, do we have to then be a donkey and get kicked? Or if we kind of step on a frog and say, out of my way, do we have to become a frog and get stepped on? That would be pretty literal for every action as an equal and opposite reaction. He said, if that was the case, there'd be no escape. Karma's more intricate than that. But he said, it is the case that when an action is done that is felt in a certain way, then it will have that kind of result, that feeling. So in other words, if we do an unwholesome action with, that generates pain, there will be some kind of painful result. 
But this leaves open a tremendous flexibility in karma. Please, please be patient with me. It's going to take me a little while to get this out. But this is a very important concept, I feel. Then he gave an analogy. The Buddha said, if, if uh, two people do the same trifling, unskillful deed, something that's not really heavy, but still unskillful, some kind of deluded or some kind of greedy or averse intention, if two beings do the same deed, one of them later gets drugged to hell, drugged to a painful state. Whereas is another one who did the same deed experiences in the here and now a kind of feeling, a painful feeling, but only for a moment. Now, what's the difference between these two? The one person who did the same deed, the Buddha said, who didn't develop the body, didn't develop the mind, didn't develop restraint, didn't develop unlimited states, didn't develop a reservoir of good energy, then the unskillful deed just kind of drags them into a painful place. Whereas the person who did develop the body, the breath body, who did develop restraint in their life, who did develop wholesome things, did develop unlimited states like what we've been doing today, that that person... That unskillful deed registers immediately the result. Not for very long. The Buddha gave an image of the salt crystal. It's an important image. He said to the monks and nuns, if I were to take a lump of salt, a chunk of salt, and put it in a small amount of water, would it be easy to drink that water? And they said, no. It would be very salty. Hard to drink it hard to bear it. He said, that's, that's like what happens when we, the person who did the unskillful deed and only had a little bit of water. That unskillful deed makes it really hard to drink. But if you drop that lump of salt into, he said at the time, into the Ganges, in those days it was pure, at least not polluted, and he said, what would happen? Could you drink it? And they said, yes, because it's been dissolved. It's been diluted. It's a very important principle that when we cultivate a reservoir of good energy, a reservoir of goodness, a reservoir of restraint, a reservoir of what's called baramita, or these qualities which, which are virtuous, which are wholesome, then, then it creates a reservoir of good energy. And then when the results of that which we've done, which, which is harmful, they can be diluted so that we can, we, we can then have them manifest here now. We can burn up, transform some of the unwholesome karma. We can work with it. Sometimes if we're just only relying on meditation, our cup of water is too small. I tell you what, that salt's pouring in. And, and, and we're, just, we're just confusion. And just drug into a state of can't bear it. 
And that's why this path, this path is more than just meditation. You know, learning to refrain from the unskillful, that's an important part of path. Learning to lift up that which is good, that's an important part of the path. And also purifying the heart. We notice sometimes that uh, we notice sometimes in the room when we when we when we are sitting and then when we chant praising the Buddha. Has anybody noticed how sometimes the feeling tone changes quite a lot? That's an example. That's one of the things as we go back into our daily life we can look at as a way of cultivating blessings, cultivating this reservoir that can, that, that can help bring, lift up the wholesome, bring the good, helping us then dilute some of these tendencies, some of these results that are besetting us. When one praises that which is worthy of praise, this is a great blessing in the teachings of the Buddha. Just to contemplate the Buddha. Contemplate the saints and sages. Already, already, we're we're bringing into the mind that possibility. We're linking with that energy. The Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas have made huge vows. I mean, the energy of a Buddha is just inconceivable. Eons ago, Tanisha just described one eon. One eon is when the universe explodes, goes apart, goes apart. Our universe is still going apart. According to Buddhist cosmology, it stretches, and then and then there comes a time when it comes back together, collapses, and then there's a period of time in between. Then it explodes again and goes apart. Each of those is an eon. And an eon, just to give an example, he said if a, if a bird with a silken cloth uh, flew around a mountain that was a mile high, a mile wide, a mile deep, solid stone, and, and touched with a silk cloth once every hundred years, the mountain, at about the length of time it would take to rub that mountain down, that's, that's about an eon. <laughs> We're talking countless eons. You can be open to that, that the Buddha says, beings have been going around samsara. And, and, and imagine, at some point, being touched, which the Buddha, just like us, he was an ordinary being, just like us, that at some point was touched. He met a wise being. He met a Buddha. He met a peaceful being and saw the beauty, the awesome wonder of being truly peaceful and truly able to help others. And the thought arose in him, I want to be like that. I want to do that. He made a resolve. And the classic resolve, it's a little different for each each one, but the classic resolve of a bodhisattva, an awakened being, a being dedicated to awakening, not just dedicated to awakening, that's the bodhi part of bodhisattva, but sattva means dedicated to helping others awake. The, the, the vow that, the, that the, our Buddha made, all the Buddhas made was, living beings are numberless, I vow to help them all move across the sea of suffering to peace. It's a big vow, big resolve. <clears throat> 
Living beings are numberless. How to help them all. One. Two. Afflictions are inexhaustible. There's greed, there's hatred, there's all forms of delusions, there's jealousies, there's dullness, there's restlessness, there's doubts. Afflictions are inexhaustible. I found, I vowed to cut through them all. I vowed to transform them all. Big vow. Number three, Dharma doors are immeasurable. Dharma doors. All different kinds of beings. Each of us have different, and that's why I'm hoping that each being will sense what works for you. For, for some of us, devotion and chanting opens the way. Contemplating the Buddha or a saint opens the way. For some, the breath, the friend of the breath, the simplicity of the breath opens the way. For some, like Ajahn Chah, the simplicity of Take it back to the mind. Just know the mind. Opens the way. For some very intellectual types, the study opens the way. The intricate investigation of the way of things so that the rational mind is, is satisfied enough to begin to calm down. <laughs> Domidors are immeasurable. I vow to cultivate them all. Not just to know what works for me, but he vowed, I, I cultivate them all so that I then will be able to respond to each kind of being. The fourth vow, the Buddha path is unsurpassed. Nothing higher than Samasambodhi, than perfect, full awakening. Not only the letting go, which we can taste, of peacefulness, of non-suffering, I say not only, but that's wonderful. That's the, the core. Not only that, unshakably. But then, the dream, the forms, the karma, all the different beings resolving to cultivate skill to be able to respond to each being. All these qualities of restraint and generosity, renunciation, vigor, Patience, truthfulness, resolution, kindliness, loving kindness, equanimity, these different qualities, cultivating them all. The Buddha path is unsurpassed. I vow to cultivate it. This, this, these vows, which then motivates a being to appear again and again, and we think, oh gosh, that's a big job. And at first it seems impossible. We think, God, there's no way. There's no way. Seven days seems impossible. Seven eons? Oh, come on. And yet, as we go into the seven days, we start to begin to realize that it isn't seven days. We don't have to do seven days. We do this moment. We do this moment. We do this moment. And more and more we realize that the illusion of time is, is all arising and ceasing in this moment. And actually, we, we learn more and more to find ease within the vigor. But when one reflects like that, then when one does puja, when you, when you kind of praise that which is worthy of praise, honoring the Buddha, one is, one is opening to... If one's cynical mind hasn't clamped down so hard, 
And if it, if it has, it's all right. We have to kind of be patient with that one. Use a little metta there. Listen. Listen to the mind that's convincing us. No way. There are no blessings. Don't give me that stuff. <laughs> Ain't nobody out there that's going to help you. you got to do it yourself. And that's that. Okay, if we've got, if we've got that condition to work with, then work with that condition. But it's very lonely. <laughs> and the refuge is talking also about Sangha. That the refuge is not only the awareness, not only the practice, but that also we're affected by each other. And we've been looking at the beautiful meditation that Tanisha did today. We're, we're literally interbeing, we're breathing in all each other. When we start to be open to that and to feel the blessing, then we get a sense for, for how, not just in our meditation, how to increase our reservoir of good energy that, that makes it possible, that allows this transformation of, the, of our unwholesome karmic results that, that, are, that are hindering us. So learning this, this, uh, these, um, these chants, this learning to praise that which is worthy of praise, honoring that which is... It sounds very dualistic because you think, oh gosh, well, I'm worshiping something out there. But it's not out there. One's allowing that to... That in us which knows there's limitation, that wants to grow, allowing that to praise the unlimited, while at the same time being aware of that, rooting ourselves in the present, in the here and now. And being open and sensitive enough to feel the response. It's a miraculous universe, a dynamic universe. We've been we've been uh, chanting the to the Bodhisattva of compassion, the great awakened being of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, or in Chinese it's translated as Kuan Yin, the one who listens to the sounds of the world. The uh, the Buddha, our Buddha, uh, praised very much the great power of this this being, this awakened being, who's generated so much blessing. So much capacity to help. The, the, the Buddha praised the efficacy of, of, of honoring that bodhisattva, of saying the name of that bodhisattva, of allowing one's suffering to be heard. I'm suffering. Help. Allowing ourselves to actually be willing to receive help. I mean, somebody might be thinking, that ain't Buddhism. Buddhism is about self-help, period, full stop. Is it? A lot of it is. How come the Buddha didn't just kick everyone away and say, self-help? <laughs> <laughs> Don't bug me. <laughs> So obviously the presence of the Buddha, the words of the Buddha, the presence of the Sangha, 
all of that made huge differences to inspire, to encourage, to begin again. We do affect each other. Yes, there's an effort that needs to be made, a very significant effort, and, and, it's, and it's been here in abundance over this retreat, all the patience, all the willingness to begin again. But we've also received a lot of blessings too by, 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 by honoring the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, by, by cultivating the patience and the kindness, by doing also that which is wholesome, which is allows that which is good to help us. It is possible to ignore that side of practice, but one then runs very easily the danger of getting very dry in one's meditation, of then having the water get so salty we just can't drink anymore and then we quit. It happens a lot. Why? Why did the Buddha offer the notion of refuge, the taking of refuge? Why did he teach learning to cultivate the blessings of generosity, the blessings like we've been doing today of kindness, not only for well-being, not only for blessing others, but also because it, it, it helps, helps us then work with all the obstructions, transform all the obstructions. In daily life, I found this incredibly important. In a way, it was less important in the monastery because there's so much reminding us, so much service, so much discipline, so much generation of good karma anyway. But, but, but especially in, in, in the lay life, it was, I found very important to me in the monastery too, but I think especially, you know, some, some ways of also just doing that which is good to, to, to help stay connected to what is precious to us. To help keep a, a reservoir of goodness going so that we don't just get drugged drug away by difficulty. <coughs> These moments of kindliness are, are just like that that we've been practicing today are incredible. We haven't talked much about it, but I won't tonight. But generosity, just moments of giving, can can make such a difference in our reservoir of goodness. Because so much of the obstructive stuff is coming around grasping, contracting, keeping, spiraling into 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 some pit of self obsession. A gesture of giving can little one can sometimes crack us out of that. I remember years ago, someone visiting the monastery was in a bad state. Had some aspirations. Had some good qualities. But was dealing with major obstructions. Had been in prison. Had done all kinds of things that weren't good. Was still being haunted and beset by, by, by all kinds of Lusts and desires, and 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 his uh, and and as that was kind of coming in, coming in, coming in, coming in, the mind just was was uh, he just went into a black hole. 
I was very sick in those days and had to spend most of the time lying down in, uh, in the attic. That's another story. But I looked out the window, looked out some window, and, and I saw this guy walking off with a rope. And, uh, and something in me knew he's, he's going to try to kill himself. And uh, so I, mean, I was sick. And so I rushed down the steps and went out of the house, tried to find this guy. He was going out into the forest, and he had this rope. He was going to try to hang himself. And he was in a bad state. He couldn't hear anything. And I'm, I'm sitting there. I wasn't dressed properly, and I was very thin, and I was sick. My teeth were chattering. It was uh, winter time. And, 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 and at some moment... He noticed my teeth chattering. <laughs> and uh, in a moment, one moment, he says, you're cold. Do you want my jacket? He gave me his jacket. Snapped him out of it. Just that. Just that gesture. Not permanently, but a huge energetic shift just to lift up a moment, one moment of something wholesome. Don't underestimate the value of these things in our spiritual practice. They're very important. Along with our formal meditation to, to, to honor what is worthy of honor, a, a puja, and allow the blessings of this tremendous vow power of of saints and sages that is still present, is still part of this mysterious universe. Or in this case, a gesture of giving, the, 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 the Buddha taught us that when we look at the energetics of giving, it's, 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 it generates harmony, beauty, happiness, generates happiness. And if we, if we, if we do a gesture of giving to, to beings who we respect, it's important to give to everyone in ways, through listening, through helping, yes. But there's also an important energetic understanding that when we support or connect with or like give a prayer to a Buddha or to someone that we respect, then, then the voltage is powerful. I remember once washing, just washing Ajahn Chah's bowl for him. I was, I think, in bliss for days. Just the thrill, the thrill of supporting or massaging his feet. So the, the beautiful energy of learning to avoid that which is harmful, which we'll, we'll look at in the next day or so, this what's called restraint, so that we don't set into motion that which is harmful, generating patience, generating harmlessness. But also, you know, learning to do things that are just plain good. Honoring the Buddhas. Practicing generosity. Practicing kindness. These make a huge difference. Tomorrow we're going we're gonna to offer something that can be quite strange. 
in uh, to some of us. But uh, it's been so important in in uh, my life, and and I think Tanitha uh, and I have found it very wonderful too. That we we've, we've decided more recently to to offer this, and it's it's this uh, ceremony revolving around Kuan Yin, this Bodhisattva who's dedicated to helping living beings, and it's a very profound reflection on our karmic obstructions, that which binds us which are rooted in everything that we've ever done that has been harmful. And to actually learn to... Well, I found this a very, very, very powerful thing. And, and uh, tomorrow morning we'll, we'll, we'll pass it out. I'll say something in the morning about... at uh, 9.30 about going through the ceremony so that we can go through it just reading it together. And uh, for some that just, you know, you might not want to do it, and that's okay, because it's, it probably pushes, it can push quite a few old buttons. But uh, this, and it's, some of it might seem foreign, but there's a principle in there that I really feel is powerful and significant, and so I hope one will at least reflect on the principle, whether one feels like one wants to join in or not. And the principle, really, of just using our mind, using our body, using our speech to honor what we treasure, whether we call it Buddha Dhamma Sangha or whether we just call it truthfulness and kindness, but to learn to use our body for something good just for the sake of generating goodness. And then to, and, and then to, to, while doing these movements, to reflect, to meditate on that, to keep reflecting on the empty nature of things. And at the same time to, to actually be willing to say, yes, help would be nice. Are we willing to receive encouragement? Are we a type of person who has to know everything just inside? Yes, we've got to see things inside, but can we allow this dynamic universe also to encourage us. If we're open in some sense to that, then I, then I think you'll be interested in this, in this ceremony. Actually allowing, may that which is wholesome help us. Help us transform some of this stuff that's holding us back. I feel that we're, we're surrounded by many forces and beings which want to help us. Can we be open to that? And can we be, continue to be worthy of that just by making our effort to... And Tanisha and I have both been really, really uh, touched by people's patience, people's willingness to give, all of your willingness to give of yourself, to kind of even at the end of long days... Uh, listen to talks, to share, to patiently work with uh, stuff. I don't know what you all feel, but I really deeply sense we are generating a lot of wonderful energy, not just for ourselves, but for this planet and for our fellow beings. 
And I, I do uh, appreciate your patience this evening as I went on longer than I normally do. But I, I wanted to try to uh, share some of these ideas which I feel are significant. To finish the evening, may we just praise the name of the Buddha, which refers to all Buddhas, to the timeless Buddha nature within. And may, as we make this sound, may it uh, share the goodness of our lives with all beings, each and every one, above, below, and all around us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.